The snow is falling, the nights come early, and you're listening to Burning Rock Radio. Burning Rock Radio is the ongoing story of Ivy Romeo's search for her friend Sam. If you're new to the podcast, we suggest that you listen from the beginning. Chapter 28 We Talked Between the Rooms June 2002 There was no way I was going to be sleeping that night, which was fine since I had a radio show to prepare for. I had planned on going to the studio and reorganizing some of the school's cassette tapes and maybe put up a poster or two to make the space feel a little more punk rock. One look at the windswept water outside the window and one minute remembering what Sam and I saw that night was enough for me to forget the idea entirely. I had already been stupid enough for one night. So maybe I had been partially right in trying to get the proof, but Sam was right too. Going down to the water had put us both in danger and ultimately hadn't been worth it. Though maybe I was only saying that because it hadn't worked out. If the video had been perfectly clear and utterly stellar, I think I would have been singing a different tune right then. I wouldn't have regretted it for a moment if it had worked. Isn't that the nature of things? But I probably should have known that it wasn't going to work. I probably should have been smarter, understood the limitations of my camera quality, and recognized the level of skepticism in my friends. Tonight had ultimately been my fault. I pulled up a chair next to the window and sat down to watch the water. I could plan the radio show in my head and write it all down later. Right now, I felt like I should be keeping an eye on the ocean. It was an odd feeling. I wonder if this is how lighthouse operators think. Do they just sit and watch the sea for hours on end? I've always thought I would make a good lighthouse operator even if I have no idea what actually goes into the profession. I could be alone for days at a time, though, watching the water, eating snacks, playing my guitar, writing poetry in a thousand identical black notebooks, which I would keep on a shelf next to the massive lighthouse light bulb. When I did want to socialize, or if I needed supplies or something, I would just leave my island, row to the mainland, and spend the day in a nearby fishing village listening to the guys at the pub talk about the storms rolling in and the new guy in town. Life would be simple and definite, with plenty of room for me to plan exactly what I wanted to accomplish on any given day. In short, lighthouses are my jam. I probably watched the ocean rise and fall for a solid two hours that night. At first, I was vigilant, but after a while, I felt my mind begin to sway along with the water. The ocean became almost hypnotic, and I began to lose focus. Soon, the cycles of my thoughts almost seemed to match the cycles of the tide. I would think about my sister... And then I would think about the monsters standing heavy and expansive on the beach, reaching into every corner of my mind, sucking the sand back into the depths of the water. And then I would think about Sam and how upset he had been. And I would think about my sister again. And then, suddenly, 
I felt that I was no longer there. It was the strangest feeling. It felt like I was watching a TV show of my life now instead of living it. It was like I didn't exist anymore. The physical sensation of the chair under my legs and the draft of cool air sneaking under my blanket were gone. I was nothing but thoughts, and I was moving somehow. I felt my body lift up from the chair, although somehow my vision seemed to stay level. I was moving toward the window, and then I was outside the window, and the whole world around me had disappeared into a night sky full of blinding color. And then I was back in the chair, and I could feel it again, and I could smell the burnt coffee from earlier in the evening, and I was scared out of my mind because I knew I had just started to teleport again, and I knew that I couldn't control it. And I knew that if I couldn't control it, I could end up anywhere, and if I did that, I had no way of knowing if I would ever get back. And that was the moment that I started carrying my ID and a wad of cash with me everywhere I went, even when I was sleeping. I knew I was still spectacularly unprepared, but at least I felt better about myself for a couple hours. I went back to the couch, but instead of returning to watching the window, I laid back and tried to get some sleep. It didn't work, of course. My brain was running in a million directions. For one thing, it occurred to me that if I ever could learn to control my spontaneous teleportation, if I could actually master it and show my friends, maybe they would believe the other stuff too. I closed my eyes and tried to think about any common factors that might have caused my body to suddenly try to evict me from my current position. Were there triggers that sent me spiraling out of control? Were there things I could do to control it? I had no idea. My phone chirped just then, startling me out of my contemplation. It was Crown. Are you still up? The text read. Yep, what's up? I replied. Need to talk to you about something. I tried asking what he needed to talk about, but there was no response. We had literally been together two hours ago. What new bulletin item had he managed to drum up in that time? Crown wasn't the kind of person to wake people up in the middle of the night, even if he was the kind of guy who might stay up all night himself. This must be important. A moment later, I heard a key in the lock, and Crown stepped into the living room. Hiding in the dark like a mob boss, I see, he said, stuffing his keys back into his pocket. He had changed into shorts and a t-shirt since I saw him last, and I thought he looked cold and a little more vulnerable than normal. I didn't know how to explain that I was searching the beach for a monster, so I didn't bother explaining at all. I just switched on the lamp beside me and smiled. Can't sleep either, I said. Don't know. Haven't tried. Crown chose the seat directly across from me even though that seat was a stiff-backed, partially broken armchair. It was very like him to literally square off, to choose the most challenging position he could. So I just got a pretty interesting phone call, he said. He leaned forward and touched the tips of his fingers together, giving the impression of a cop who was about to start an interrogation. I felt uneasy, like maybe the call had been from my third grade teacher telling him about the time I cheated through my math quiz. 
Seriously, I had learned my lesson and never done it again, but somehow I always assumed it was going to come back to haunt me. Pretty late for phone calls, I said. Yes, but interesting phone calls break all time barriers. Like Santa Claus, I said. Okay, Crown replied. After a brief pause, he whipped out his phone. So, my friend at the lab called. She got some interesting results from that substance that we sent her. I leaned forward too. This could be big news. What did she find? I asked. First, and perhaps most importantly, she found that this substance doesn't match any other known substance on Earth. I took a moment to process this. Crown said it so calmly that it took me a moment to register. So, are you saying... I'm saying it's literally a new discovery. We can call it ivy goo or burning rock relish or whatever we want because apparently no one has ever seen anything like it before. Let's, let's not call it ivy goo. I shook my head. I may be tired, but not tired enough to let that slide. What else did she say about it? It appears to be organic, Crown said. Though she said that's tricky too. Personally, I don't know enough about chemistry to understand why it's tricky, but there it is. Crown leaned back in his chair. It squeaked in protest. The other thing is that the substance itself seems to have some weird properties. Like what? I said. She thinks it might be restorative, Crown said. What does that look like exactly? My mind immediately went back to that little plant in the sidewalk crack that Sam had doused with the substance. It had seemed to grow instantaneously and dramatically. She thinks it might have some capacity to regenerate cells, Crown said. He handed me his phone. There was a tiny video on the screen ready to be played. I pushed the button. The video showed a wilted flower in a vase. For a moment, the video remained static, but the grainy footage soon came to life as a hand reached out, holding a test tube of clear liquid. The hand tipped the substance into the water, and it dripped down with the viscosity of honey. At first, nothing happened, and then, slowly, I watched as the flower perked up and returned to its former vibrancy. I handed the phone back to Crown. You probably just edited this, I said. I couldn't resist. Have you just been sitting here in the dark hoping you would get the chance to say that to somebody? Crown folded his arms. I smiled. That is wild, though. I said, though I've already seen it work on a plant. What? Crown said. Yeah, when we first found the stuff at the arcade, some of it wound up on a plant and the plant grew a bunch. And you didn't tell me? Given what happened tonight, I doubt you would have believed me, I replied. He sighed and leaned back. I probably should have believed you, he said nodding slowly and looking out the window. He looked back at me. I'm sorry. For some reason, it felt strange to hear Crown apologize so sincerely. 
I had been telling the truth about the monster, but that didn't mean it wasn't an utterly ridiculous thing to insist upon. Crown was fairly normal for refusing to believe it, but he looked truly apologetic about failing to listen to me the first time. Hey, I wouldn't have believed me either, I said. So, he winced like he was struggling to put the pieces together. It's starting to look like this is all connected to Brad's disappearance. The thing you saw on the beach. I would wager a guess that it's the source of our burning rock relish. I made a face. You know, the more you say that, the more I like ivy goo. Crown grinned. So, what do you say we take another look at the arcade? I may or may not have received a second text today. Did you get the password for the computer? I asked. Yep. Turns out he keeps them all in a fishbowl in his old room. Ew. It's a robot fish, so it's not that gross. A robot fish? He made it for his senior project in high school. Left it at home because he was afraid the college people would think he was too nerdy. Crown paused. I talked to Brad's mom for longer than I would have liked. I smiled. So do you want to go? He asked. My insides jumped with excitement at the proposition. Something about the way he said it, with a sparkle in his eye and a slight jangle of the keys in his pocket, made me feel like a kid sneaking into the cafeteria after hours. Absolutely, I said. I'm free any time after three tomorrow. I was thinking now, Crown said. Seriously? I asked. Journalism waits for no man, Crown said. Not even small town, glacier slow journalism. Without letting myself think it over too long, I got up, grabbed my wallet and keys out of the tray next to the door, and led the way out into the hallway. Somehow, Crown's confidence made me feel better, though I probably shouldn't have just run out into the street hours after seeing a giant, possibly flesh-eating monster roaming the beach. Can we take the car? I asked. Of course we're taking a car, Crown replied. As we headed down the hallway, I thought about stopping and asking if we should wake up Sam. Normally I wouldn't have dreamed of doing something like this without him, but tonight felt different. I think part of me wanted him to be safe. I didn't want to drag him back out into the street for another potentially dangerous quest. But there was another part of me too, and I think that part was still irritated with him for being mad at me. I followed Crown into the parking lot without suggesting it. It was kind of funny. Even though I'd lived next to Crown for quite a while, and even though I saw him for organized social events at least once a week and ran into him casually far more often than that, I still knew very little about him. I knew that he was tall. I knew that he walked faster than I did, probably on account of being tall. I knew he drove a funky little VW rabbit with a couple of bright orange door panels. I knew that he was confident beyond just about anyone else I'd ever met, but not in a loud way. He walked to the car like he owned the street, dodged puddles with sure steps, walked tall without cowering in the rain. I got the sense that Crown truly owned everything that he did and that no one ever made him do anything he didn't want to do. 
For that reason, I was particularly proud that I had been invited along. I felt like I must have earned it. The seats of Crown's car were stone cold, and the whole thing smelled like one of those cinnamon pine cones that you can buy in the supermarket during the holidays. Crown flicked the windshield wipers on and pressed a cassette into the slot. Billy Joel's voice filled the cab, and I smiled and leaned back in my seat. This was the second road trip of the day, and somehow this one felt more relaxing. Did you really come here for school? Crown asked as he eased the car out onto the road. I looked at him, unnerved by this line of questioning. Why else would I have come? I said. That's what I'm asking you. I came here because I was looking to start over, I replied. Isn't that why everyone comes to small coastal towns? Maybe if you're Michelle Williams in Dawson's Creek. Are you Michelle Williams in Dawson's Creek? That might not be so bad, I said. This town seems like it could use a shake-up. Crown laughed. It's interesting. I had never asked Crown how he wound up here, but now that I was thinking about it, it didn't quite make sense. Crown seemed like the kind of guy who would do well anywhere. Sure, he had really made the small-town reporter thing work for him, but he probably could have made it as a big-town reporter. He probably could have started his own magazine in college and ruled the internet before it was cool. As far as I knew, he didn't have any family in town or any other deep roots. So why was he here? Why had he picked Burning Rock? I was about to ask, but we arrived at the arcade before I had the chance, and before the first Billy Joel song had even ended. I always forget how small and close everything is around here. There's no time to let yourself out, to breathe as you make your way along the highway or stutter your way through the traffic grid. Everything is immediate and every decision plays out before you've had time to think it through. October 2007. On nights like this, I think about Sam. I think about the look on his face when I met him. He had the kind of face that was constantly ready to break into a smile. For Sam, everything was funny all the time, and while it got him into trouble sometimes, I've never met someone so alive. I think about how he's sarcastic and quick-witted, but unfailingly kind. And I think about how Sam's smile made you feel like you belonged wherever you happened to be. Thank you for listening to Burning Rock Radio. Visit us at www.burningrockradio.com and follow us on Instagram at Burning Rock Radio. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. And Sam, if you're out there, we all miss you and hope to see you soon. <laughs>